Last time we spoke about the actions along the Matanikau. The first American attempts to harass the Japanese along the Matanikau was an utter disaster, resulting in the death of 60 Marines with another 100 wounded. However, the Japanese had little time to gloat, as when they tried to perform their own offensive, the Americans made a second go of it, leading to the Japanese taking a whopping 700 or so casualties. Henderson Field still remained the crux of Japan's misery in the Solomons. Meanwhile, the Tokyo Express was hard at work trying desperately to get as many men and supplies to Starvation Island as they could manage. They were met with onslaught after onslaught from the Cactus Air Force. The IGN promised the IGA they would step up their transport game, and the result would be a major attempt using a large surface fleet in early October. Unfortunately for the Japanese, the American Navy would be greeting their convoy. This episode is the Battle of Cape Esperance. Welcome back to the Pacific War Podcast week by week, and I'm your dutiful host, Craig Watson. But before we can begin, I just want to remind you all that this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of Kings and Generals over at YouTube. Perhaps you want to learn a bit more about World War II? Kings and Generals has an assortment of episodes on World War II and much, much more, so go give them a look over at YouTube. So please, subscribe to Kings and Generals over at YouTube and continue to help us produce this content by checking out www.patreon.com slash kingsandgenerals. And hey, don't forget about our sister podcast over at the Age of Conquest, the Fall and Rise of China podcast, narrated and written by me. And if after all that you are still hungry for some more history, why don't you check out my personal channel, the Pacific War Channel, over at YouTube, where I'm just finishing up a series I did in collaboration with Dave Holland on all the medals of honor earned on Guadalcanal. Give it a look, it'll mean a lot to me. The Battle of Alligator Creek, the Battle of Bloody Ridge, and the actions along the Matanikau had devastated the Japanese. The Japanese realized they were now losing the initiative, and they would need to prioritize Guadalcanal. The Tokyo Express worked overtime sending almost 17,500 men to Guadalcanal in the hopes of forcing a decisive battle to claim the island and its vital airfield. General Hayakatake landed ashore Starvation Island on October the 10th, and no sooner than he stepped foot on land did a staff officer rush over to greet him with some terrible news about their losses at the Matanikau. One part of this report read like this. The Japanese position on the east bank of the Matanikau resulted in the total annihilation of the 4th Regiment. Hayakatake soon established his HQ in a valley just two miles west of Kokumbona, where he received some more terrible news. The Guadalcanal garrison had only obtained about half the necessary amount of provisions they required. In fact, coupled with the transportation difficulties on the island, Kawaguchi's command was near death from starvation. Hayakatake immediately halted the movement of any more men to the island and demanded the transports bring food and supplies in their place. However, this order did not affect the Tokyo Express runs of the date which were already sending three destroyers with another 293 mouths to feed to Tasagaronga. The loss at Matanikau had a dire effect not just on the men, but it hindered the plan to assemble the artillery pieces on the east of the Matanikau bank which was vital to hit Henderson Field for the planned October offensive. 
The 17th Army HQ began urging the convoys to just go through to the island regardless of the danger of American reprisals. Now while the Japanese and Marines were fighting along the Matanikau, the natives began reporting that there was a Japanese outpost at Gurabusu, a village just 30 miles east of the Marine perimeter, and they seemed to have a lot of radio equipment with them. Five miles west of this location was Kolotemeria, where they said there was around two companies of Japanese survivors from the Matanikau actions, and they were just loitering about. Thus, Lieutenant Colonel Robert Hill of the 1st Battalion 2nd Marines over on Talagi elected to hit these positions. At 3.40pm on October the 9th, two YP and eight Higgins boats took four officers and 430 of Hill's men to Alola. Unfortunately, there was an accident along the way where one of Higgins' boats came apart under the strain of the tow, leading to three sailors and one officer and 14 marines to drown. The other boats arrived in piecemeals between 1am and noon on October the 10th, making Hill fear he had lost the element of surprise. He decided to immediately hit Coelho Tamara via an overnight march with two companies. Company C, led by Captain Richard Stafford, was given the task of hitting Gurabusa at dawn the next day. Early on October the 11th, Stafford's company encircled the Japanese detachment at Gurabusu and in a very one-sided battle killed 32 men of the garrison by 8.30am. Only a single Japanese escaped the slaughter. Captain Stafford did not, however. The natives identified one of the dead Japanese to be Ishimoto, a former shipwright intelligence agent who played a major role setting up a Japanese occupation of the area. For the other marines en route to Koilo Tumaria, they found the terrain extremely rough, and as a result, it took them till 4pm to get there. By that time, the Japanese had heard reports of the attack at Gurubusu, so they fled for their lives through some swamps. The marines still ended up managing to kill another three Japanese, including an officer, at the cost of one dead marine, and another wounded. Hill returned to Talagi on October the 12th, on the eve of an event every American on Guadalcanal would always remember. The early termination of the marine actions west of the Matanikau had yet again illustrated the sparsity of American forces on Guadalcanal. Admiral Gormley understood that there was a grave necessity for reinforcement, but did not know where they would come from. During his September inspection of the situation on Guadalcanal, Admiral Nimitz told Gormley to scoop up units from the rear areas of Guadalcanal. But Gormley was a bit obsessed and concerned over the potential disastrous consequences of a Japanese thrust towards the sea lanes from the US and Australia. Gormley also had orders to seize Nididi in the Santa Cruz Islands. Admiral Turner had persuaded the commanders to advance certain schemes to occupy Nididi using marine and army units. On September the 29th, Gormley announced his intention to occupy Nididi using the 8th Marines. The announcement was met with some shock. General Harmon on October the 6th wrote to Gormley pressing his personal conviction that the Japanese could retake Guadalcanal and, quote, would do so in the near future unless it materially was strengthened. Nididi is a diversion from the main effort and a dispersion of forces. If we do not succeed in holding Guadalcanal, our effort in the Santa Cruz Islands will be a total waste and a loss. The Army General continued to urge for reinforcements to be brought to Guadalcanal, at least one regiment, and for the efforts to be made to refine Henderson Field. He used this tactful phrase. The intensification, as means and conditions permit, of a naval surface action in the South Solomon waters. 
After an evening conference with Harmon and Turner, Gormley reaffirmed his intention to secure an airfield site on Nadini, now using army troops. But he was swayed by Harmon's logic, and he ordered an infantry regiment to go straight over to Guadalcanal. On October the 8th, the 164th Infantry Regiment was sent aboard the transports Zeelin and Macaulay at Noumea. The transports and their escorts made their way to pass north of San Cristobal through the Lengo Pass to Lunga Roads and arrived on October the 13th. Now Gormley did not expect the Japanese to passively allow such a convoy to make its way into the area, so he deployed most of his naval strength in the South Pacific for its support. The USS Hornet lent air cover and a task unit built around battleship Washington went east of Maleta to shield the right flank of the convoy. Task Force 64, led by Rear Admiral Norman Scott, consisted of four cruisers and five destroyers, and was given the job of protecting the convoy from the west and to smash any Japanese efforts to reinforce Guadalcanal or bombard it. Scott would have to carry out two implicit tasks. Number one, he needed to develop a doctrine for night surface actions by cruisers and destroyer groups. Number two, he had to take revenge for the humiliation that occurred at Savo Island. Scott knew full well the enemy excelled at night battles. The Japanese had taken down eight Allied cruisers and three destroyers without a single loss of a ship. And thus far, this was because of their nocturnal activities. Scott crafted a simple battle plan, built around the attainable rather than the desirable. His ships would sail in a column with destroyers ahead and astern of the cruisers, the destroyers would illuminate targets with their searchlights as soon as possible after radar contact and launch their torpedoes at large enemy vessels while using their guns on the smaller ones. Being someone who plays far too much World of Warships myself, this sounds actually like a pretty logical plan. Cruisers would open fire when they saw a target without awaiting any orders. Also, the cruiser's float planes would be used to help find and illuminate the enemy. If the IGN proved to be stronger destroyer-wise, the force would divide to present smaller targets for their torpedoes. Scott also made sure his captains did some drills for firing at night. The one serious thing Scott overlooked was the selection of his flagship, however. Heavy cruiser Salt Lake City and San Francisco were his most powerful units, and Scott ended up taking the San Francisco. However, the mastheads on both of these warships supported only metric wave SC search radar, much more inferior to that of the newer centrometric SG radar, which was held by the light cruisers Helena and Boyce. To make matters worse, radio intelligence experts erroneously credited the Japanese with receivers capable of picking up radio emissions from the SC radar frequencies. Because such a detection would occur well before the radars picked up the return echoes from the enemy warships, the advantage of radar would be, well, reversed. Accordingly, Scott ordered all the SC radar switched off during the approach phase and authorized only the SG radar to be in use. So just to sum up all of that, no, the Japanese did not have receivers capable of picking up the SC radar, thus switching off the SC radar was not going to help in any way. And if you already turned off the SC radar, as the leader of this naval unit, I would think you should probably be on a ship that was using radar for the approach. So it is quite questionable, his ideas here going forward. It turns out Scott was not very well educated in the differing radar technologies, but he really should have known 
it would have been best for his flagship to be aboard one of the warships that held the SG radar. On October the 9th and 10th, Scott took his ships beyond the range of Rabal's air forces, until noon, when he began moving north to the vicinity of Rennell Island by 4pm. From there he could reach Savo Island by 11pm, but it would turn out that the Japanese were not present there, so he turned back. Then on October the 11th, the Japanese began to ramp up their Tokyo Express game. The seaplane carrier Nisen and Chitois were going to bring to Tassafaronga four 15cm howitzers, two field guns, one anti-aircraft gun, and a ton of ammunition, and 280 men. Five of their escorting destroyers would add more troops, and in a separate group, two destroyers would escort Rear Admiral Aritomo Goto's three heavy cruisers of Cruiser Division 6. They would all bombard Henderson Field with 8-inch shells fitted with anti-aircraft fuses so they would burst the projectiles above ground and scatter fragments causing absolute carnage. The combined fleet hoped this technique would hurt the Cactus Air Force. The reinforcement group would reach Guadalcanal first with Godos coming behind them. The IGN assumed the American naval forces in the South Pacific would not dare contest them at night. The protection for the reinforcement group was entrusted to the 11th Air Fleet and the airfield at Bun, which was now complete allowing the new R-Area Air Force to help. Its role would be to direct air cover using short-range zeros while Rabal would toss long-range zeros and Bettys. This would mean there was going to be a two-pronged air attack on Guadalcanal. They further hoped that by throwing fighters first, this would tussle with the Cactus Air Force, then when they left the Cactus Air Force, theoretically would be landing back on Henderson Field to fuel and rearm, but by that time, the Bettys would swoop in and hit them all while they were on the ground. Pretty good plan. At 12.20 on October the 11th, Radar picked up the first Japanese formation of 17 fighters, enabling the Americans to launch 8 Navy and 31 Marine Wildcats, and a dozen or so P-40s and P-39s of the 67th Squadron. However, 15 Wildcats of VMF-121 would not be able to join up for the action due to some poor weather. The main wave of 45 Bettys and 30 Zeros lost cohesion en route to Guadalcanal because of, again, poor weather, and they arrived in piecemeal formations barely 45 minutes after the first wave. This proved to be far too early to catch the Americans back on the ground. When a group of 18 Bettys emerged out of the clouds to bomb Henderson Field, the VMF-223 and 224 pounced on them, claiming 8 destroyed at the cost of just a single P-39. The Japanese pilots would claim they shot down two American planes, while the Americans would claim four zeros on top of the Bettys shot down. The actual losses were one Wildcat and one P-39, while the Japanese lost one Betty and three damaged Bettys. Those claims are just so ridiculous. The 11th Air Fleet failed to crush the Cactus Air Force, but they did manage to keep their attention away from the reinforcement group. American search groups, however, did find the reinforcement group, with pilots reporting two cruisers and six destroyers being present. Godo's group was not found at the time, however. Based on those reports, Scott ordered general quarters for his four cruisers and five destroyers, the Japanese, they would find, were three cruisers, five destroyers, and two seaplane carriers. Scott's ships would enjoy more guns, but the Japanese certainly held the edge in torpedoes. Each American cruiser launched its floatplane in the direction of Tulagi and Guadalcanal, sifting through the darkness of 10pm looking for the Japanese. 
The Americans were going 20 knots, and at around 10.15 p.m., they were going around the northwest tip of Guadalcanal. Visibility was quite poor. There was no ambient light. At 10.33 p.m., Scott's ships were in their battle formation with destroyers Fahrenheit, Duncan, and Lafey, leading the cruisers San Francisco, Boys, Salt Lake City, and Helena, followed by the destroyers Buchanan and Mikala. Scott intended to approach the enemy with two cruisers and six destroyers heading north. If they failed to intercept the enemy, they would double back south, running along the coast, and, quote, to contact the enemy, if possible, before he could effect a landing, but at any rate, contact him. Scott was unaware he had already been discovered by the Japanese submarine I-26, which had been lurking around the surface near Kamimbo Bay at 922. Commander Minoru Yokota, however, chose to dive his sub for an attack before relaying the sighting. By the time Minoru resurfaced and began his report, it was already 11.41, and far too late to be of use. Also, at around 10.45, the reinforcement group's sailors aboard Nishin and Chitozi, around Tassifaronga, could hear Scott's float planes flying about, but they failed to report this to Goto's group. Not sure if I had said it in this series yet, but these float planes that the Japanese cruisers use, they're actually quite noisy, and at night you can definitely hear them from quite far. And they have a very distinct sound, so a lot of the uh, Marines and Army men of the United States knew them by sound. At 10.50, a San Francisco float plane reported, One large, two small vessels, one six miles from Savo, off Northern Beach, Guadalcanal. We'll investigate closer. The next report indicated the enemy was 16 miles east of Savo Island. Scott directed a course change to intercept. However, there was a communication failure, resulting in three destroyers turning away from his flagship. At the same time Scott's forces were changing course, Godo's force emerged going around 30 knots. Godo's flagship, Ayoba, was led by the Japanese cruisers in the column, Furutaka and Kunugaza, then destroyers Fibuki and Hatsuyuki, who were around 3,300 yards to Oyoba's starboard as screen forces. Unbeknownst to Scott, the radars aboard his light cruisers detected Godo minutes before his course change. Helena got her first contact at 11.32, indicating Godo's force to be around 27,700 yards and 120 degrees at 35 knots. Boys commenced her own countermarch at 11.35 when Godo's forces appeared on her radar, but as on the Helena, all the officers assumed Scott's flagship had also seen the contact. Because, why did he make a course change the time that he did? It was all just a coincidence. And a dramatically troublesome one. At 11.42, Helena reported the enemy was bearing 298 degrees in a T-formation, starboard side, of the now southwesterly moving American formation. Then boys reported five bogies bearing 65 degrees, which was bizarre, as bogies were code for aircraft, though boys clearly meant ships, and did not clarify this when asked to. This indicated a third group of enemy warships was somewhere off the port quarter to the northeast. Scott now panicked because he assumed boys was picking up their own destroyers on radar, and he began to interrogate Captain Robert Tobin, the commander of Destroyer Squadron 12, aboard Fahrenheit. Are you taking station ahead? 
A very confused Tobin now realized he was out of formation, and he answered Scott. Affirmative, coming up on your starboard side. He said this under the belief that Duncan and Leifey would dutifully conform to the course change of his Fahrenheit. Well, they didn't. In fact, the Duncan, full of what I can only call Leroy Jenkins energy, launched into a lonesome charge right at the Japanese formation. For several minutes, Duncan's gunnery radar issued signs of Godot's presence. Duncan's Lieutenant Commander Taylor had concluded two things. The Japanese were poised to strike their column in its vulnerable turn, and Captain Tobin had to have recognized this and was jockeying Fahrenheit for a torpedo attack. Taylor acted on instinct and leapt forward at 30 knots on an attack course. Lieutenant Commander Hank aboard Leifey's bridge chose to follow the Fahrenheit. At 11.45, San Francisco's radar finally picked up the enemy just 5,000 yards to starboard, while Helena reported... Ships visible to the naked eye. She reported this while her radar ensign impatiently demanded to the navigator, What are we going to do? Board them? Captain Hoover of the Helena had authorized to fire, but still asked permission because of the rampant confusion going on with all the destroyers. To make matters even more hilariously confusing, Hoover asked over the TBS using the general signal procedures message, repeating twice, Interrogatory Roger. Both times the reply came back, Roger. But the Admiral meant Roger as in an acknowledgement of the receipt of the request. But an unqualified Roger also meant open fire under the general signal procedure. Yes, this is some rather confusing stuff, folks. Hoover elected to open fire at 11.46 with his 15-inch main battery, rupturing the night with thunder and flame. The sudden gunfire caught Godot's force unprepared and nearly unaware. At 11.43, just three minutes before Helena fired, Godot had reduced speed to 26 knots as Ioba's lookout spotted warship silhouettes just 11,000 yards away. Godot assumed it was the reinforcing group and began sending a recognition signal. When they reached 7,000 yards, the lookouts exclaimed it was enemy warships prompting the flagship to order general quarters. But Godo remained skeptical and he ordered a repetition of the identification signal. So as you can see, both sides are very, very confused during all of this. As Yoba turned parallel to the American column, the salvo from Helena smashed right into her superstructure, killing many men and mortally wounding Godo. Other shells hit Ioba's communications and her 2-inch gun turrets and the main battery director. The later shots most likely came from the boys, whose main battery was rapid firing at Oeba at 4,500 yards distance. The Japanese flagship also attracted 8-inch shells from the Salt Lake City and San Francisco along with 5-inch shells from Fahrenheit. Caught in the front line of fire was Leifey, who swerved into formation astern of the Mikala. Three of Leifey's guns snapped at Oeba, while her fourth fired illumination rounds. Helena fired both her main and secondary batteries at ships to the right of Oeba, which she identified as destroyers. When the firing commenced, Duncan was around a mile off Oeba's port quarter. Taylor noted the Japanese guns were training on his ship as he turned hard right to clear the American line of fire, but when he spotted the Furutaka in a tempting position, Taylor reversed and launched torpedoes. 
Yet before the Duncan could get parallel to the Furutaka, it began swinging starboard and increasing speed. Duncan's guns fired upon her, but the Duncan received a hit in her number one fire room. The American guns were barely warm when at 11.47 Scott suddenly ordered, Cease firing our ships! Because of the confused whereabouts for the three destroyers, and without radar to sort out who was who to the starboard, Admiral Scott feared they were firing upon their own destroyers. Scott clamored aboard the bridge to ensure compliance with his order, but not all the captains heard or heeded his order, and the fire slackened but never really fully stopped. Once again on the TBS, Scott questioned Tobin. How are you? To which Tobin said, We are alright. Then Scott asked, Are we shooting at you? And Tobin replied, I do not know who you are firing at. Yes, this was a rather confusing battle. Scott then ordered Tobin's ships to flash their fighting lights. The cluster of lights dispelled Scott's doubts, and at 11.51, he ordered firing to resume. Now, from the Japanese point of view, the American fire hardly ever moderated during what was a four-minute interval. Aoba made a turn to starboard, increasing speed, but she kept getting hit, setting her ablaze. Only one turret remained in action, and it fired seven shells. At 11.50, the Aoba began to make smoke, which masked her fires, and made some of the Americans think that she was sunk. In her wake came Furutaka. Captain Araki Tsutao had figured out Godo's Aoba had fumbled when the Japanese T was crossed, so he took his ship to port to get out of the deadly embrace of the American guns. Yet when Tsutao saw the flagship being battered, he gallantly turned Furutaka into her wake to try and save her. Furutaka received many hits. One hit smashed her torpedo tubes, igniting a bright blaze acting as a literal beacon for the American gunners to switch from the Aoba to her. Less gallantly, Captain Masio Sawa veered Kinugaza around a port to get his ship away from the American guns. Hatsuyuki did the same, managing to escape with just two hits. During the short lull, San Francisco was tracking a ship just 1,400 yards away on a parallel course. It was the destroyer Fubuki. The Fubuki performed some light signals revealing the make of her ship, prompting both the boys in San Francisco to rake her with shellfire. As they opened fire, the other American ships began to join in, tripling the helpless destroyer into a blaze of fire before she quickly sank. The boys and Helena had triple-mounted 6-inch turrets which could fire 30 or more rounds per minute, and they performed like clockwork upon the Fubuki. The Fahrenheit, however, found herself dangerously poised between the two formations when the battle opened. Admiral Scott had ordered a ceasefire to help her out while she was receiving fragments across her topsides, killing several of her crew. A short time after, a 6-inch shell, it was most likely an American one, pierced her port side above the waterline, hitting an oil tank. Fahrenheit was forced to retire out of action and crossed ahead of San Francisco to safety. At around the same time, the American shells drove Fahrenheit to retire. The destroyer Duncan was curving in to launch the torpedoes. As she fired, shells began to smash into her gun directory, two 5-inch mounts and her magazines. Taylor knew his ship was within a crossfire and he ordered the port fighting lights clicked on but no sooner than he did this, did four shells from American guns hit Duncan's hull and bridgework. With her rudder jammed hard to left, Duncan began looping slowly out of the battle area. 
A few minutes before midnight, after Scott had ordered the firing to resume, all of his ships, save for the Fahrenheit and Duncan, had joined in on battering the hell out of the Japanese column, and they received just a feeble amount of returning fire, some of which hit Boise's superstructure. Destroyer Buchanan launched five torpedoes at the Furutaka around the same time as Duncan. At 11.58, one of them hit the Furutaka in her forward engine room. Some Duncan observers recalled this. The Furutaka crumpled in the middle, then rolled over and disappeared. The Furutaka took over 90 hits above the waterline during the action, and a few others below, but she kept on steaming. At 11.54, Scott then sent a message to Admiral Gormley and Vandegrift, stating, Engaging heavy cruisers. At midnight, Scott thought, Some shaking down was necessary in order to continue our attack successfully. So Scott ordered fighting lights to flash and allowed around 10 minutes to rectify his formation, and then he changed course 280 degrees to pursue the enemy. He would later write, this concluded the first phase of the action. At five minutes after midnight, the boys saw torpedo wakes coming from the Kinugaza. Captain Moran turned boys sharply to starboard just in time for one of the torpedoes to miss her stern by just 30 yards. Both boys and Salt Lake City had their searchlights on to assist their gunners, but this also made them targets in return. Boys' rapid salvos also continuously revealed her position. So at 12.09, the Kinugasa began to set her guns upon her. The Kinugasa had also been firing upon the San Francisco prior, but as she changed targets to the boys, Captain Moran acknowledged, The enemy cruiser was shooting beautifully with twin 9-inch mounts and straddling boys forward repeatedly. At 10 minutes after midnight, a 8-inch shell hit boys number 1 barbette, jamming it and starting a fire. Then a second 8-inch shell penetrated her hull and exploded in her main magazine behind turrets 1 and 2. The combined explosions from those shells and powder rooms unleashed torrents of flames which seared to death nearly a hundred men. Smoke, debris, hot water, and sparks flew up well above the level of the forward directors. The captain was knocked against a bulkhead, but two things saved the boys from sinking. Her well-trained men allowed water to get into compartments to put out the fires before closing them off, and they steered boys out of the column to port properly. Captain Small, aboard Salt Lake City, took his ship between the enemy and boys to help her out while he set her guns upon the Kinugaza. In an indecisive duel, Kinugaza took about four hits while hitting Salt Lake City twice. One of Kinugaza's shells hit a boiler, causing Salt Lake City's speed to fall to 22 knots. At 12.06, Scott changed course again, now to 330 degrees, to press the enemy, but when the Japanese began to increase their rate of fire, by 12.20, he elected to just retire. Scott's formation was broken up, and the enemy silenced their guns. Scott chose to retire, also out of fear that the San Francisco might be mistaken as an enemy ship by the other Americans. And I mean, that is a strong possibility, since... I don't know if you've understood this or not, the Americans have basically been shooting themselves for half of this battle. All of Scott's ships began to flash their fighting lights, and turned 205 degrees, keeping a straight formation. Scott was unable to get word from Captain Tobin of the Fahrenheit, nor the boys, so he sent the Mikala to aid them. 
At 12.44 a.m., he told his captains, Stand by for further action. The show might not be over. The main action would be over, however. Admiral Godo's force was battered. The reinforcement group, however, completed their business unmolested and retired. The boys managed to put out her fires, giving Captain Moran a lot of pride for his crew. But this was also tempered by a bitter sadness at losing 107 men. The Fahrenheit would have three deaths, and they were escorted back by Aaron Ward, who had come over from Noumea. Despite receiving 40 hits, the Aueba joined Kinugaza in retirement to the north. Godo was mortally wounded, and his chief of staff, Captain Kikunori Kijima, succeeded him for his command. Kijima bent over Godo, and he told him, You can die with an easy mind, because we sunk two American heavy cruisers. The Furutaka had lost power. Atsuyuki tried to help her, but there was not much that he could do. Furutaka had taken hits below the waterline, and by 2.28 a.m., she sunk, claiming 258 crewmen just 22 miles northwest of Savo Island. The Duncan, still ablaze and alone, had to be abandoned at 2 a.m. She would end up sinking about 6 miles north of Savo Island the very next day. The Macalla saved 195 survivors from Duncan, but 48 men perished with the ship. In the course of her assistance, the Macalla also encountered Fubuki survivors, but the Japanese refused any of the thrown lines. Macalla sailors secured three swimmers by force, and the next day the minesweepers Trevor and Hovi would press gang to compel the other 108 Japanese survivors to accept their hospitality. The reinforcement group would also rescue 8 Fubuki survivors, meaning 119 would survive from the complete 197. Admiral Mikawa received news of the battle and he rushed his cruiser division 6 to protect the reinforcement group and perhaps attack the enemy. At 7am, 5 American aircraft attacked the Kinugaza, though she did survive this and kept fleeing south. Then, 11 Dauntless, led by Lieutenant Colonel Cooley, found Shirayuki and the Murakumo at 8.20 a.m. The dive bombers claimed a hit on the Murakumo, spilling oil into the sea. A second strike group of American aircraft found the two Japanese warships managing to torpedo the Murakumo, taking out her power. The Asogumo and Natsugumo rushed to the scene to try and help the Murakumo only to get attacked by 11 Dauntless, 1 Avenger, 4 P-39s, and 8 Wildcats at 3.45. The Natsugumo received a hit and two near misses causing severe flooding. She would sink at 4.27 with her captain and 16 of her crew as the Asogumo took survivors. Other bombs hit the Murakumo, killing 22 of her crew and forcing the Shirayuki to scuttle her. The Japanese had lost a heavy cruiser, three destroyers, and 565 men. Perhaps even more painful, though, was the hit to Japanese pride, as it was all during a night battle. In contrast, Scott's victory was hailed as a grand victory for the Americans. Duncan was lost. Boys was severely damaged, and Salt Lake City and the Fahrenheit would require some repairs. A total of 163 officers and men had died. On October the 13th, the 164th Regiment arrived safely to Guadalcanal, which was being hit by a large Japanese air raid at the time. 27 Bettys and 18 Zeros evaded the Coast Watchers en route to hit Henderson Field. 
They were, however, picked up by radar and met by 42 Wildcats and 13 P-39s. But the Bettys were simply too high up in altitude to be engaged properly. Only a single zero and one Betty would be lost as they dropped bombs placing 13 holes in the runway and ignited over 5,000 gallons of gasoline. When many of the American pilots landed to rearm and refuel, a second wave happened, causing further damage to the aircraft in the runway. That very same afternoon, the IGN attempted another high-speed convoy consisting of six fast transport vessels, each carrying 68 landing crafts, 4,500 troops, and strong anti-aircraft guns. Their escorts were eight destroyers, and at 6.30 p.m., 15-centimeter howitzers began to fire shells upon Henderson Field. The culprit was the 1st Battery, 4th Field, Heavy Artillery Regiment, squatting beneath some camouflage west of the Matanikau, just 2.5 miles southwest of Kokumbona. Vandegrift's men knew this bombardment after the usual air raid meant something new was afoot. Vandegrift ordered a general alert, and they certainly would be alert that night. Down from the north came Rear Admiral Takeo Kurita, leading battleships Congo and Haruna which each held 18 14-inch guns. Their escorts were nine destroyers and a light cruiser. At 1.30 a.m., the Marines could hear float planes, which soon dropped flares upon their area. Then at 1.33 a.m., at a range of almost 30,000 yards, the Congo and Haruna began to fire salvos. One after another, American planes, ammunition, gasoline dumps, and other materials were turned into burning wreckage. Marines crouched for their lives within a 14-square-mile area, but about a third of it received the bulk of Congo and Haruna's shells, making it the most concentrated shelling in history in terms of rapid saturation of an area. Martin Clemens noted, The very ground shook with the most awful of convulsions. Vandegrift was flung to the floor by a near miss and would later reflect... Until someone has experienced naval or artillery shelling or aerial bombardment, he cannot easily grasp a sensation compounded of frustration, helplessness, fear, and, in the case of close hits, shock. There was a bit of a lull that occurred at 2.13am, but then the Japanese resumed fire, and despite American torpedo boats trying to make a desperate attack on the fleet, the Japanese would continue to fire until around 3 a.m. when they finally retired. The naval bombardment was a grand total of 973 shells from two battleships. Japanese air raids and the howitzers near the Matanikau both aided in making Henderson Field unusable. Virtually all aviation gasoline was burned. The Cactus Air Force was smashed. Only seven of the 39 Dauntless were operational, while the fighter strip fared much better. 24 of the 42 Wildcats remained operational, and four P-40s and two P-39s. Incredibly, the high-explosion shells killed only 41 men of the 20,000 present. For the newly arrived 164th Infantry, the bombardment was a baptism under fire. They would lose three men. On October the 14th, Admiral Yamamoto declared the American aircraft on Guadalcanal to be suppressed, and he ordered his naval forces to head south and destroy the U.S. fleet. Vandegrift sent word. 
urgently necessary, this force receive maximum support of air and surface units. Absolutely essential aviation gas to be flown here continuously. However, the only operational carrier was the USS Hornet now, who was no match for the combined fleet. SyncPAC sent word back. Our position is not favorable to prevent a major enemy landing. Admiral Fitch was the only man who had heard Vandegrift's cry for help and could do something about it. He ordered all 17 available Dauntless on Espiritu Santo to fly for Guadalcanal alongside 21 Wildcats. These planes would all be useless without fuel, however, so Fitch organized an airlift with the Army and Marine Douglas transports to provide the gas that they needed. Over on Rabaul, General Miyazaki, the Chief of Staff of the 17th Army, wrote in his diary on October the 15th, The arrow has already left the bow. General Hayakatake would be able to launch a major offensive to take Guadalcanal. Yet, as cliffhanging as all of that was, I do need to make a little detour to the Aleutian Islands. Back in early August, both the Japanese and the Americans allocated resources to the North Pacific, trying to redirect the other side's attention from Guadalcanal. The Americans believed that they had a 4-1 to one advantage over the Japanese at this point, and Hap Arnold said, Today, we have over 215 aircraft in Alaska being contained by less than 50 Japanese aircraft. Thus, the Americans were hungry to use their advantage to hit Kiska and Attu. To form an offensive, however, they would still need to seize territory closer to the Japanese bases. Because of the terrible climate of the region, General DeWitt decided to carry out the construction of an airfield on Adak. The relationship between the American commanders was deteriorating each day. General Buckner wrote a rather insulting poem about Admiral Theobald, which certainly pissed him off, but eventually when both of their posts were threatened, they figured out how to cooperate. By the way, it's definitely worth a Google to find that poem. It's rather hilarious. On the night of August the 28th, submarines Triton and Tuna snuck over to Attic Island and landed 38 Alaskan scouts led by Colonel Lawrence Kastner. The men rapidly paddled to Kuluk Bay, where they found no enemy presence. They reported this intel back to Buckner the following morning. Then 4,500 men of the 7th Division, commanded by Brigadier General Eugene Landrum, left Unalaska using over 250 improvised transports, notably including a ton of Canadian warships to land the men on Adak by August 30th, where they would commence construction of a new airfield. That same day, the Japanese submarine RO-61, led by Commander Tokutomi Tatsudo, snuck into Nazam Bay and torpedoed the seaplane tender Casco before being hit and sunk by the destroyer Reed. At Adak, the new airfield construction was being rushed as Marauders, Warhawks, and P-38 Lightnings continuously patrolled the island to cover the engineers as they worked. In just 10 days, the airfield would be finished, and on September the 10th, the first aircraft would be arriving, now just 250 miles away from Kiska. Four days later, 12 B-24s, 28 P-38s, and P-39s performed an air raid, sinking two minesweepers and did considerable damage to Kiska's island facilities. Meanwhile, a detachment of 800 soldiers were sent to seize Atka Island on September the 16th, establishing an emergency fighter landing field there. 
Fearing an enemy invasion on Emchitka Island, Major General Higiyuchi Kichiro of the Northern District Army decided to temporarily abandon their outpost on Atu Island and instead reinforce Kiska. The Americans launched a second air raid on September the 25th in which Canadian squadron leader Kenneth Boomer shot down a Zero fighter, becoming the only Allied pilot of the war to claim both German and Japanese kills. So go Canada. The second raid was quite successful at damaging more installations, but the Americans' new base on Adak was soon discovered by the Japanese floatplanes doing patrols. The Japanese would send a number of unsuccessful air raids against Adak on October the 5th. That same day, a survey of Amchitka convinced Higuyuchi it was possible to build an airstrip there, so he sent the 83rd Independent Battalion led by Lieutenant Colonel Yonegawa Izamu to reoccupy Atu. Yonegawa's men would arrive by October the 29th with more reinforcements over the following weeks. Then on October the 16th, six marauders managed to damage the destroyer Hatsuharu in Kiska Harbor and a B-26 scored a critical hit on the destroyer Oboru, which exploded and sank without any survivors. Things were going better for the Americans in the north, while Guadalcanal was still a very tense situation. I would like to take this time to remind all of you that this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of Kings and Generals over at YouTube. Please go subscribe to Kings and Generals over at YouTube and continue to help us produce this content by checking out www.patreon.com slash kingsandgenerals. And hey, don't forget about our sister podcast over at the Age of Conquest, the Fall and Rise of China podcast, written and narrated by me. And if after all that you are still hungry for some more history, why don't you check out my personal channel, the Pacific War Channel over at YouTube where I am releasing a series I did in collaboration with Dave Holland on all the medals of honor earned on Guadalcanal. It's pretty awesome, so give it a look, it'll mean a lot to me. Rear Admiral Norman Scott scored a tremendous victory over Admiral Godo, though it did involve a lot of friendly fire. While the Americans tried to savor their victory, it was short-lived, as the Japanese literally tossed the kitchen sink at Henderson Field, leveling it heavily. Can the Marines withstand another Japanese offensive, or will Guadalcanal finally fall?